Sustainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Sahil Lavingia, CEO of Gumroad. Sahil Lavingia, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Earlier this year, you wrote an article titled, Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion-Dollar Company, where you shared how you left your position as Pinterest's second employee to go begin working on as what you described as your life's work. It's a vivid and honest account of your last seven to eight years of building a startup, cultivating a community of creators, raising initial rounds of venture capital investment, chasing hockey stick growth, not quite meeting those goals, resulting in you ultimately needing to lay off about 70% of your staff. While there are numerous sub-stories that I'd love to dig into, I'd like to first dive into the story about a month after those layoffs. At that point in time, how many software developers were actively working on the Gumroad codebase? After the layoffs, like the, the 75%, um, yeah. around five people, including myself. And did you feel that the codebase was in a healthy state at this point in time? Yeah, I think one of, one of the things that we did that paid off was that we really invested in keeping Gumroad as a really scalable piece of software. So even when we were 20 people, we had an idea that this was going to be a hard track for us. You know, it wasn't really a surprise to anybody. Like we sort of had signed up to build something that we, we all thought was like pretty difficult. That's, you know, part of the reason mm-hmm. that, that we were doing it in the first place. So we had always been cautious about that. Like we didn't want to build a 20 person company that required 20 people. We wanted to build a 20 person company that really just, we were all working on new stuff, you know, it was called, you know, sort of quote unquote research and development. So when we had to do the layoffs, a lot of people sort of freaked out. They were like, can you guys even survive? Like, how do you have time? It's funny, even when we shrunk down to one, people would ask me like, you know, like, how are you able to do anything? And it's like, actually, I work on government five hours a week. That's sort of the power of software is that you can automate everything almost, right? There are a couple things you can't support customer service, risk, fraud, review, things like that. You know, if the site goes down, you, you're you going to have to do something. When you do have a solid world-class engineering team, a couple dozen people working on the company with those concerns in mind, you can you can build the software, the product, the, the processes in a way that it does end up being a thing that one person can run um, on five hours a week, right? Tim Ferriss wrote the four hour work week. And right. I, I always joke with people that like, I actually got there for a brief amount of time, this mythical thing in, in that world. It's interesting. And then when you, when you mentioned uh, automation, can you speak to a little bit of like how that might've helped the engineering team out? Were there a lot of like manual tasks and things that you were having to deal with at one point that you were able to automate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you deal with money, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, is typically done manually. And the way venture back startups work is that they're typically fat, right? Like they, they have a lot of money to spend. It typically doesn't make sense a lot of the time to, to optimize for some of this stuff. It's easier to just say, Hey, like we're going to hire someone for $50,000 a year that will help us do all of these sort of manual things. Typically, they're getting overpaid to do that because it's not that much work in the beginning. And as you know, over time, those things grow until you know, until they're probably underpaid for that. But what it means is that the product team, the engineering team, never have a chance to like revisit some of those 
problem areas, right? Like it's sort of invisible. It's sort of hidden. It's almost like in a closet somewhere. And then all of a sudden when you're moving, you're like, oh crap, I didn't realize there's all this stuff that we had to deal with. And we never had that problem. I was so concerned with the culture of the company being dominated by non-technical people that I was always like, we need to optimize as much of this stuff as possible. We need to scale as, as, as much of this stuff as possible. We need to automate as much of this stuff as possible. And there are a lot of metaphors and things that I taught within the company to kind of help that happen. But sort of speaking to specific examples, things like payouts, I, we, we've been in talks to acquire a couple smaller e-commerce companies. And it makes me realize, like, kind of like what Gumroad was in 2011, 2012, like most, for most, for most companies, payouts are automated. Even for larger companies, companies larger than Gumroad, I won't name names, but, um, the, a lot of those things are automated are not automated. There's probably someone in charge of that. Yeah. It's someone, typically it's someone in charge of that. Some, there's a lot of accounting. There's a lot of sort of manual reconciliation. Someone is in charge of sort of running the payouts. They're typically a, it's a full day thing, right? If you're issuing, you know, let's say 10,000 payouts, right? Like a million dollars on, on Friday, it's typically going to be a full time, full day thing for, for a lot of companies. For us, it's not. We run payouts, you know, at two in the morning and it finishes at, you know, two fifteen or something like that. But it took a lot of work to get there. There was a time where it wasn't automated. And between maybe a couple months before the layoffs, I was talking to one of one of my favorite engineers, Lee. Yeah, I was kind of like, Hey, we need, you know, we need to automate payouts. He's like, we can't automate payouts. That's crazy. You know, like what if we accidentally pay a bunch of people out or what, you know, like what if something goes wrong? You know, so we just watched like the process and we just really paid attention to what the humans were doing behind it. And it just seemed like a, a rote task. It seemed like people were sort of checking boxes, making sure things weren't broken. And we're like, we can automate all that stuff. That's super possible. The other thing is you're forced to, right? Like a lot of these companies aren't like Gumroad was in a dire position. We needed to do some of these things. So maybe if we were like, Oh, maybe we'll revisit that in six months. We were at a, it was a, it was a time in the company where we we're like, we can't wait. And there are other things that play into that, like the, you know, typically infrastructure is breaks all the time for a lot of companies and people are always fighting fires. And certainly we have our fair share of those. But because Gumroad had been in a relatively stable state, we were able to mitigate a lot of those issues. Uh, so so Gumroad is a, like a pretty relatively, a, a relatively stable site. That's great. If, if we were to look back at your, as say, the, the code repository history, is it safe to assume that the first handful of commits were authored by you? Yes. I don't even know if we were using, weren't even using GitHub back then. So maybe, mm. maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> the first version, yeah, the first version of the code was written by me in 2011, April 2011. It was, I think, one Python file. It's like 2,700 okay. lines of code. I wish I could find it. I'd love to publish it just to show people like you don't need to be this amazing engineer to build anything. No, I think I think that's often like, a, especially with like up and coming, you know, junior developers trying to be like, how did you come across? And you must have had this big grand vision to, you know, to start building this project or what have you. And it can be really humbling to like walk through those old code bases and be like, there is so little and so many of the things that pop up later on in the in, in a software lifespan and such. Totally. When you work in startups, you very quickly realize that like the magic. I, you know, I grew up in Singapore and I would like be in all of these companies. And like, I just, I really kind of assumed that like they were using supercomputers or something. Like I didn't, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know what I comprehended, you know, you know, I worked at Pinterest and at Gumroad. Like there's just a lot more duct tape than you'd think. You think that right. these, these services that are supporting hundreds of millions of people are just like insane. 
I'm sure even if you go to Facebook, like there's duct tape everywhere. I'm sure there is. In terms of, you, you know, you mentioned in your article that you were setting out to begin your life's work. For those that aren't, that are listening, that aren't familiar with Gumroad, what is it and what inspired you to begin building it? Yeah. So Gumroad is basically e-commerce for creators. So we want to make it really, really easy for creators, especially digital content creators, educators, teachers, writers, filmmakers, comedians, podcasters, YouTubers, anyone that makes digital content. We want to make it really easy for them to get paid to earn money off of their work by typically by selling these products directly to their audience that they've acquired, you know, through social media, through email, through their blog, through speaking at a conference or, or something like that. The thing that got me excited about government in the first place was I wanted to sell something. I wanted to sell this icon that I had designed in Photoshop. And I had done a little bit of research online. There just re- wasn't really anything out there that I felt was like easy enough for me to use. And I was like a designer. So I wanted it to be pretty and simple. And, and it didn't seem like a hard problem, right? Like it was like, right. okay, Bitly exists. Dropbox exists. Like there's these services that <laughs> exist sort of that are pretty well known that help people like share content. But the minute you want to charge for content, it's not super simple. Some big e-commerce site or something to try to sell one product. Yeah, you or have something. to kind of, yeah, you have to either set up this like, big e-commerce website, or you have to participate in some sort of marketplace, which often has like so, sort of some approval mechanism. They typically take like 30 up to 70% of the revenues. I actually just saw this thing happen yesterday where someone, someone's house was burgled, some artist, and he tweeted, he's like, Hey, you know, I lost all this stuff. I created a bunch. I went into work the next day and used the work computers to like make a bunch of tutorials you can go buy on Gumroad now. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's not ideal of a situation, but that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, right? He would have just like created like a store, like an, a Shopify, you know, like I don't even know. But it was so easy for him to just like, you know, record this video, probably took him a couple hours, you know, edit it, upload it to Gumroad, charge money for it, pay what you want so people can pay more, tweet it out, the tweet goes viral or whatever, like boom, you know, and that couldn't have happened, I think, without a service like Gumroad. Right. So what uh, technology choices did you decide on? You mentioned Python early on. Is that the bulk of what the of Gumroad is built with these It's these not days? actually. So we rewrote the application in Ruby. I did not. I should not say we. That's a royal we. <laughs> you really kind of end up with the engineering choices of whoever the first couple people are that you hire. Yeah, the first guy that we brought on, Paul, was way more proficient in Ruby, Rails, and things like that. And so we converted the app. You know, it was so early and so small. That, you know, it was like maybe a week or two to convert the whole thing into Ruby. Um, and it was a good idea. I think, I think I don't regret that decision at all. I think in terms of hiring and things like that, like it, it makes it a little bit easier. And personally, I prefer, I, I mean, I like Python too. A lot of the side projects I build are using Python, but Ruby is pretty solid. That's great. Thinking about what sort of processes did your team adopt kind of to manage the development workflow kind of in that early era of the organization? I mean, early on, like every startup, it's super informal, super soft. Basically, we'd have breakfast every Monday at like 11, I think, um, at a like sort of a nearby brunch spot and then just like sort of talk about all the things that we wanted to do. And, you know, in the early days, like there's just so much obvious stuff that there's like not a lot to disagree on (laughs) because it's just like the product is so clearly not good enough. It's so clearly not functional enough, even for some use cases. It's just 
really easy, honestly, because you just, you, you, we were shipping, I think almost like a feature a day at, at that point. Oh, wow. you, you also have like no technical debt, no legacy code to worry about, no users, frankly, that would mm-hmm. care that much if you broke everything, you know, that you can just ship like super fast. Very quickly though, you know, when you start growing the team, you, you need more process. So we, we started doing standups every day. We started meeting every Friday to discuss all the things that we did that we didn't get done. And we built that into a process over time that, you know, involved the whole company that involved quarterly goals that fit into yearly goals. Um, using OKRs, which is like a pretty popular sort of goal setting framework right. that I personally really like. I think there are problems with OKRs, frankly. I don't think it's perfect, but I think there are a lot of good ideas built into OKRs that make it really, really nice for a sort of small to medium sized company that doesn't have like a huge plan yet. Right. And it allows for better or worse, a lot of employee participation. It sort of allows like this sort of bottoms up approach to product development that I'm not sold on, honestly, because I think founders really like that idea. Because it's sort of like outsourcing, you know, it's like you want your team to be super, super, super engaged, super involved, super right. motivated. But I actually think employees often don't like that because they trust the founders often. They trust the executive team. So I, I would sort of, if I started another company or if I sort of revisited that as the team continues to grow, um, I'd probably have some sort of hybrid approach with like traditional top-down management and OKRs. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. In terms of uh, some of the development processes that your team, were there a lot of experimentation with different approaches to just how you're handling your development workflow? That's a good question. It's hard. Honestly, it's hard to look back and sort of see. I'm sure there were. I remember definitely some growing pains around 12 people. A lot of it isn't necessarily in like the sort of fundamental processes. It's mostly about the implementation details, right? It's like, do we do this asynchronously or synchronously? Do do we do Uh this? On Fridays or on Mondays, that is a huge thing that I think startups, like seriously, like, you know, we, we went through, like, do we do all hands on Fridays? That's sort of the obvious one. But, you know, Fridays is tricky because a lot of people, you know, aren't there on Fridays, right? Like vacations and such or long yeah, vacations, work. We it just things come up on Fridays, right? Like if you're going to take a day off, it's mostly Fridays. Then you do it on Thursday and then Thursday night. Do you want to do it Friday morning? Do you do it on Mondays? We tried Mondays one time for a while and that was cool. But then, you know, and we actually did this weird inverse thing where we had the stand up to decide what we're going to do the next week before the all hands for the last week. And it was kind of cool because it allowed sort of thinking about what we wanted to do before we kind of digested, you know, it allowed us to digest and figure out what we wanted to do next before we sort of presented it every team individually. But inevitably, we went back to this like very normal Monday mornings. We meet and discuss the week and Fridays afternoons. We tell everybody what we did and it's not perfect, but sometimes like the most boring sort of uninnovative solutions end up being the ones that work. That, that That's true. Which makes sense, right? Like right. there's a reason that those things have become, um, not always, but there's a reason that those things have become like the norm. Do you, so when you kind of, Back to that kind of month or so after you, know, you had layoffs and such, went down to say a skeleton crew. Did you still lean on a lot of the same processes, or did you kind of find yourself kind of pushing those aside for a while? We definitely got rid of most of them. When we shrunk, it was like you know every morning we'd meet super high cadence. The thing is, the truth is, with a lot of these processes, like they're not 
universal laws. They're not like gravity or anything like that. They're really like, it really depends on the size of the company, the, the makeup of the company, how much of it is technical, non-technical, remote or not. They're all failures, right? They're all fail- failures of our, they're sort of indications of our inability to communicate super effectively without structure. You know, mm-hmm. In an ideal world, like we'd sort of be communicating this sort of ambient status mechanism all the time. And people would sort of always know what we needed, what we wanted, you know, what we're, what we're doing, what we did, what we're about to do, right? Like in the nature of like building software, you'd think there'd be a little bit more of that. And there is typically actually, when you have a team of people that are mostly just shipping software, you can sort of rely on that. Right. You can lean on things like GitHub commit Slack stuff more because so much of working is sort of automatically transcribing what you're doing. But when you start growing the team on a non-technical basis, you realize like you can't, it doesn't really work anymore. Anyways. Um, yeah. So when we, when we shrunk down the team and one of the big changes we made actually was to get rid of Asana. I love Asana personally, big fan of the company, big fan of the product. Love it to almost, to, it was like a joke at Gumroad, like how much I loved product management. <laughs> uh, I really do like it. But well, when we shrunk the team down, it was like we, we were using Asana for a bunch of stuff. We we're using GitHub for a bunch of stuff. You know, some people were using other tools within the company. And I was basically like, we're just going to use GitHub. It's not going to be perfect, but having a single source of truth, a single place that people can go to, to sort of, you know, see everything that matters to the company, uh, everything that we're working on going forward. That was really important, especially as we think about growing the company and staying as this sort of like lean team that treats Gumroad like an open source project, almost of paid volunteers or paid contributors. Starting to think about Gumroad like that, I think has helped a lot. So to dive into that a little bit, do you have like special repositories for different aspects of the business that necessarily aren't code or is everything kind of like more issue management and like pull requests for on the Gumroad software product itself? Yeah, currently it's mostly just the on the, the ladder, the issues, the pull requests. We started using projects, things like that. At some point, and we have some docs as well, you know, around working on Gumroad. But yeah, at some point, I'm not su- su- super convinced on Git- GitHub for non-technical stuff. The way I'm thinking about it is how can we make Gumroad a technical product? How can we almost abstract away most of the business stuff that Gumroad isn't even considered really a business, right? Like, is that sustainable? I don't know. My guess is probably not. And we might use another, another tool to deal with some of that sort of stuff. I see open source projects that do super well that have tons of contributors. And so maybe it is possible. Maybe it is possible to sort of have Gumroad as a company, which is sort of separate from the open source stuff, but like mm-hmm. 90, 95% of the company, the product, et cetera, are public. They're things that everyone can work on. And then Gumroad, the company is really just a tiny team of people that manage the process. Right. Like think about on a super high level, like the, the, the company, the, the financials, the, the sort of more macro stuff. There's always some secret sauce in how a company communicates within itself and conducts its business and interacts with their users and stuff like that. That's not replicatable, you know, just by looking at a code base. Totally. Yeah. I think there, there is a danger in open sourcing everything because it implies that the value is in open sourcing, it, which is not always true. I think you're totally right. There's so much that I think Gumroad, for example, that we do that, that we do well, that isn't really sort of replicable just by like copy pasting some code or some documentation or, or anything like that. But there is still potentially value to it, right? I think there's marketing value to it. There's like lead gen 
value mm-hmm. to it. There's sort of alignment with our customers' value to it. But yeah, even when I talk to people about open source and Gumroad, I think there are people that would chip in for free, but I tell people straight up, I'm like, it's a marketing thing. I would expect the vast majority of people to still use Gumroad.com, but it would give us this really cool, I think, duality where we'd have Gumroad.org, which would be free, which would be super customizable, white label. People could do whatever they want. It would generate sort of a lot of buzz, a lot of of notoriety, and then there'd be Gumroad.com, which is... The, the business today. It might look a little bit different, but not a ton. And how seriously are you considering that? Is it something, it sounds like you've been thinking about it for a bit. Yeah. I mean, the way I like to think about some of this stuff is, is in terms of optionality. So if there's, if there's like two, two paths, right? There's some amount of work that we're going to need to do either regardless of which path we end up being. And so that's kind of the way that I think about it is like, how do we figure out what that work is? And then we can start doing that work. So then when, when we have to make that decision, the friction related to making that decision is minimized, right? Because that's going to influence what the right decision actually is, right? I noticed this in my life, actually, with with leaving college for Pinterest, with um, going to the States for college, with uh, leaving Pinterest for Gumroad, with moving to Provo, Utah from San Francisco, with deciding to paint and write fiction and like do all these sorts of things. <laughs> like I, one through line that I've sort of noticed in hindsight, I typically like bifurcate the decision Right. Where I, I say, I'm not going to make the decision. I'm just going to make it really easy for me to make the decision if I decide to. And then when I get to the, the decision, I'm like, Oh, I guess I already made the decision. Cause it's so, you know, like all the hard work, you know, is, was already done for me. I sort of like trick myself into, into doing it. I noticed that. Um, and similar with Gumroad, you know, I want to keep my options open. I want to talk about open sourcing the product because if I don't, Right. Like there's that friction into like, okay, now I have to tell people I'm thinking about even doing this. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. if we've been talking about this for two years, when we do it, it's not a surprise. If we decide to do it, it's something that we've already sort of, it's, we've sort of messaged that appropriately. And it makes me feel more comfortable about this like kind of weird, risky thing. A lot of people sense. have told me that are like, you should not open source the product. Like, that makes no sense. Like you people are just going to, you know, you're just going to destroy your business. I don't know. I think why does Gumroad exist then? You know? Like if open sourcing Gumroad truly destroyed the business, what it would mean is that the open source version of Gumroad did amazing, which is, I mean, to, in terms of the value for the world, like, isn't that awesome? That would be, yeah. Right. And, uh, and, and, and the, the per unit economics of Gumroad work, right? We're not Uber or Lyft or anything like that. Our per creator economics makes sense, literally. And so if 90% of the customer base left, which I doubt, we would still be profitable. You know, we would still be able to provide that service to those people. So there's not like this sort of like anti-network effect that can happen. That's that's true. So I want to pivot over to, I want to talk about VC for just a moment. So I work on the consulting side of things, you know, often helping companies with their existing software projects. Usually when I interface with venture capital in the past, it's usually when we've been brought in to perform, like say an independent code audit on some code base that they're potentially going to invest in. You know, having gone through that process yourself in terms of building a product and then getting funding, how involved are they in just technology decisions and do they, do they kind of stay out of your way or not? Yeah. Honestly, our investors were and are very, very disengaged. And I don't mm-hmm. mean that negatively necessarily. It's actually quite awesome sometimes when <laughs> you don't, you know, VCs are, I used, I used to think, and I sort of like, facilitate between these things but 
VCs are both incredibly smart, hardworking people and also like very stupid in the sense that they, they aren't engaged enough in your business. They don't have enough context to really make smart decisions about your business. And so I think the good ones realize that and say, if you have a very specific ask, like we're happy to help. But at the end of the day, like, you know, your business better than we do. Like you can make 99% of those decisions yourself. You can sort of keep us up to date in some sort of asynchronous manner so that, you know, we can sort of gut check you every so often. If you, if we think you're doing something weird or stupid or dangerous, but really at the end of the day, I don't know. I think the better the investor, the less help they will give you because the vast majority of, of at least what I've experienced talking to founders is that the vast majority of the interactions that people have with VCs are negative. Not negative in a, in like a malicious way, but just like not productive. And we raise from phenomenal investors, right? They've all invested in far more successful companies than Gumroad ever will be. So they don't care, frankly, right? Like they're focused on their home runs or their grand slams or whatever. And Gumroad, their singles or doubles or whatever it is, Gumroad ends up being, like doesn't really sort of even show up on their radar. Um, and they're, I'm friends with them. I don't, none of this, I mean, like in a negative way. VCs are some of the smartest people I know. Um, I hang out with a lot of them all the time. Really in terms of impact to the business, a couple people will do a lot, the person on your board, things like that. But it's, it's much lighter, I think, than, especially if you're outside the Valley, I think you expect something different. I don't think people realize I had this in that post reflecting on a, my failure to build, build a billion dollar company. I had a huge section actually. Uh, dedicated to like the fundraising stuff, VC and all my sort of learnings around that. And I just cut it all out because I just think it, it deserves its own, its own space and its own nuance. And it was like a little bit more negative, I think, than the rest of the piece, which I think was even talking about layoffs and things. I try to make it like pretty uplifting and motivating to people, not just like you should not do a company because it sucks. So I do want to publish that at some point. But one of the things that I, I put in there was this idea that like, you think everything's going to change when you raise money. I think a lot of founders think that because you're talking to investors and they're so awesome and they're telling you about all these cool things that they've done and people they've met and people you're going to be able to meet. You don't really realize that like you're one of a hundred people that they talked to in the last six months. The way they work is they invest in a lot of companies and they invest in you. And basically like the second they're invested, they go run off to try to find the next thing to invest right. in. Their business model works because they're, they're salespeople, right? Like they're selling people on taking their money 99% of the time they're, you know, or let's say 90% of the time, 9% of the time they're spending on these like few companies that they're really invested in. Either they're on the board of, or they're just like one of their high performers, they're going to return the fund or whatever. And then 1% of the time is spent talking to people like me. And actually I prefer that because if, you know, if it was 30% or 50% of people that I didn't like, that were always like, Hey, we need to hang out. Like, let me know how your business is doing. Can I help? It would just be annoying. Right. I'm sure you know um, on many different founders that are working with VC funding. Do you f ever hear stories about how, or maybe Gumroad experiences where you felt like there was some pressure to deprioritize dealing with technical debt and or some, maybe some software engineering best practices when you were not meeting, say, financial projections? We did not have that problem that much, I would say. I think part of that was because the guy on our board from Kleiner Perkins, Mike Abbott, he was the VP engineering at Twitter. So he was like pretty familiar, I think, with like the sort of the balancing that you have to do with growth versus sort of internal debt culture, et cetera. And also I think he understood like how difficult it is to grow the team. 
I think it's very hard to hire engineers. And then when you do, you have to give them lots of money. In yes. terms of like building a sustainable business, it's difficult to do that. So we didn't, we didn't really, we, we didn't really suffer too much. Honestly, honestly, I think I wish I suffered more. I think in terms of the team, in terms of my own thinking and in terms of our investors, I wish that there was more accountability on growth. I wish that people were like, Hey, dude, Gumroad only grew like 6% this month. If you want to raise a series B in 18 months, that number is not good enough. Just FYI. Interesting. That's kind of help light a fire under you a little bit. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm saying that now, right? Like maybe if they yeah. did that, I, I'd have been annoyed and it wouldn't have worked, but I definitely think that, you know, the institutional memory of doing a company I didn't have, right. I didn't know like sort of how demanding a series B was going to be in terms of the numbers and also how undemanding a series A or a seed round sort of like, at least in our experience, like raising it was funny. I I hosted a creator's dinner in Utah a couple of weeks ago, and I was sort of talking about this history of Gumroad. And one of our creators comes up to me. He's made, you know, he's super, he's done super well in Gumroad, made a couple hundred thousand dollars at least a year. And he has a full-time job, right? That's just like his side thing. Anyways, he was like, you kind of said something that like caught my, I wrote it down because I just thought it was kind of hilarious. And you said, Raising $10 million was the easiest thing I'd ever done. It was, a, it was a joke how easy it was. It was such sort of verbatim. That's sort of how I talk, I guess. That was weird to listen to, but it was true. It's like really raising money was a joke. It was so easy. I try to tell everybody that not to brag, but to be like, if it's hard for you, something is wrong. Typically raising money is not necessarily like the thing that's difficult or easy. It's all this other stuff that is you know, easier, difficult and raising money is just sort of like, you know, sort of like a heuristic. It's like specs. Like, is it, it, did you do this right? Did you do this right? Do you have these things that we want? And so it made our series, our seed round and our series A is super easy to raise. You know, I raised basically by myself. We pitched two investors. We got two term sheets, our seed round, but almost every single person we met said yes. But it was easy in the sense that I was an early employee at Pinterest I could code, I could design, I'm relatively personable. You know, I can speak well and I'm funny or whatever these attributes are that people associate with business success, right? There was a track record of products I had built and shipped. And there was a lot of FOMO because I was living in the Valley, because I was at Pinterest. Like I knew everybody, right? I knew a lot of people. And so I was meeting, you know, 30, 40 people a week. When you do that, it's very difficult not to be successful raising money because everyone is so scared. They're like, they kind of outsource their diligence to each other. They're like, well, if this person's meeting with all these smart people that I know, like he must be onto something. And everyone else is thinking the same thing. There are definitely a few investors that do their diligence, do a lot of research, but there are a lot that don't. And some of the best ones, frankly, don't. Some of the top investors sort of optics wise that people know about that I've interacted with do zero diligence. That's they're very successful. They either rely on their gut or they have some heuristics that don't require diligence or they have such good deal flow that it doesn't matter almost, or they're just amazing intuition. So that's something I've definitely noticed. So anyways, like raising money was super easy. People ask me like, well, how do I make it easy for myself? And I'm like, well, just become the second employee at Pinterest. It's easy for me to say you can. And just like I said in that post, like you can learn from my story. But at the end of the day, it's my story and it's not copy pasteable into someone else's yeah. life, right? Like you have to take it, you have to sort of compile it into your own brain 
and let it sit for a while. And it's going to influence certain decisions that you make, right? It's another data point that you have in some of these decisions. But at the end of the day, like everyone's path is going to be very, very different. Right. Let's say, given your experience having overseen a engineering team at Gumroad, what advice might you give to an engineer who's working at your company or, or say any company that might be feeling that their concerns about the long-term maintainability of their software is not being heard by management? Um, I don't know if that stuff gets re- relayed to VCs or not, but at least in terms of like trying to meet the, the, the balance between, say, product managers and customer requests and such. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I think, honestly, at the end of the day, founders are mostly going to want more technical debt than the engineers are going to want. And it's only going to get worse as you get farther away. I think part of it is you need to drive an awareness of it. I really, I really believe that most people's opinions come from like a differing set of data, not necessarily like these like profound fundamental sort of, you know, differences on whatever, whatever sort of belief system. So I think a lot of it is like making sure that you educate people. I don't think it's a coincidence that like more technically minded founders or investors are like more lenient on the technical debt stuff. I think it's just they understand it more. And so they don't think of it as like incompetence on the engineering team side, but like sort of this like natural part of, of building software. So I think that's a huge thing. It's like to make sure that like you're doing a good job, like communicating that to people. But I also think that engineers sometimes need to have empathy for the other folks too, right? Sure, to understand definitely. That like, and, and Gumroad, honestly, like we have pretty low technical debt because we're profitable, we're sustainable. We don't have to go after these growth metrics anymore. We've had like a couple of years to really sort of clean house in a sense, which has been awesome. It's great. And it makes working on Gumroad so much better and hiring easier. And so you have to sort of say, these are the things, right? It makes... Working on Gumroad easier, it makes shipping code faster, it makes hiring easier. And then you have to sort of state that case and then hope that it's important enough. Those things matter enough. And frankly, if you're like a, you know, if you're trying to raise a series B, like they don't. The, the month over month GMV gross revenue churn retain, those things are going to matter in raising a series B. Very else, very little else matters. Just like what I said, raising money was easy. It's because those numbers are 90% of the sale. And if you have those numbers, like everything else doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how broken everything else is. And there are many startups that I can think of that fit into that bucket, um, like Twitter, for example. Or you don't have those numbers, but you have everything else. You have a phenomenal product, pretty low technical debt, great team, great culture, doesn't matter. Right. You're not going to be able to raise a Series B. I like to think that Gumroad was sort of closer to that. Um, and that's why we failed. And people sure. will disagree. I've even had former employees talk to me and say, I don't agree with you. I think Gumroad could have done this differently if we just had a different story or thought about things differently. Sure. And that's fine. I mean, you know, it's, it's not falsifiable. There's no way to run an AB test on Gumroad, right? No. At the end of the day. There's no real way to predict that, right? In terms of uh, all the development processes that Gumroad has adopted over the years, which two do you believe have been the most valuable to the say to keep things maintainable from a code perspective? It's a good question. I think one one, one metaphor I like to use is is uh, caches and databases, and thinking about employees as databases. Maybe it's a really stupid idea, but I really like it, and I haven't <laughs> been able to find anything else. But, and it feels like very objectifying, 
So maybe you'll tell me this is stupid. So basically, I think of employees like databases, right? Where you have this sort of like, they're the sort of like the universal source of truth at the end of the day. They hold all of this sort of valuable information and it's the most reliable source, right? It's like the most accurate. So if you want to know something specific about something, you can go ask the engineer that worked on it, right? That's typically better than the code, better than documentation often, better than the help center because that person knows like all the nuance, all the context. The problem is you only have one person, right? (laughs) And so they can only like really sort of, you can only read from that source like at a certain rate before it just doesn't scale. And so what you end up doing with a database is you have caching layers, right? You have different things in between the reader and the database in order to sort of scale up. For example, if you keep hitting the database for the same thing and the engineer's like, it's the same answer. It's the same answer I told the last five right. people. What you should do is you should take that piece of information and put it somewhere, right? And like make it sort of possible so that when that person is thinking about asking you that question, they're actually going to go this way, see if the answer is there. And otherwise, if it's not, go there, go to you. Interesting. Um, okay. and, and to me, that is sort of how caches and databases work on sort of like a basic sort of reductive level. And that's how employees and, and processes work too, right? That's true. Yeah, they, there is that tendency to think about different projects that we manage and we have our certain go-to people that were around at a certain point that worked on it or sometimes databases crash or leave and then you're kind of missing everything that was there and then kind of have to rely on that last cache copy of it, I suppose. So it's an interesting interesting way to kind of look at that. I'd be curious. You should definitely write more about that. Yeah, I, I, the, the problem that I have is like, I try to come up with blog post titles for it and it's like, treat your employees like databases. I'm like, that does <laughs> not sound good. <laughs> right. And it's read only. It's, yeah. <laughs> but no, it works. It's definitely, you can sort of extend the metaphor into that, you know, crashing and being unavailable right. and replication lag and stuff like that. It works sort of pretty, pretty well. So that's one thing is that we really just try to think about, okay, wh- what are the caches that make sense, right? Um, like, where do we want to put that documentation? How do we surface it? And so that was always a thing. When someone joined the company, I'd basically be like, how far can you get without talking to another human being? And when you need to talk to a human being, how can I prompt you to do that instead of like basically make you run out of options so that you need to, you're like, okay, I need to go do that. You know, it's like, right. talk to this human about this, talk to this human about this and almost making it like a to-do list, right? And certain companies do that really well. I think like I've heard GitLab does that pretty well. And there's sort of new things that I'd probably experiment with, like with using Notion and maybe Airtable and things like that, um, that didn't exist back when we had 20 plus people. So that's one. And then in terms of another process, I really enjoy asynchronous communication, probably to a fault. So that's something that I sort of just like encouraged a lot is that, you know, if you want to talk to me, like do it in writing. I don't think it's a replacement. So we had, I would do one-on-ones with everybody in the company pretty frequently, at least once a month, regardless of their, like how far or close they were to me. And that helped a ton, right? You just can't get rid of that. Like at some point people have concerns that they're only going to address in like sort of this in-person way. So that's almost like the opposite. Don't assume that like technical workflows can solve everything. No, usually a lot more people focused and process that have more to do with that. I think oftentimes when we're talking with different organizations that are dealing with technical debt and such, it's usually there's obviously technical problems they need to work out and things that they to do there, but it's usually like a story about 
maybe an engineer that had pushed to try to get something done a couple times and got kind of the not right now, maybe later type of response. And then they get they kind of give up at some point on asking and then just kind of interpret that in their own mind as we're never going to do it. And then that becomes like the story that spreads around, like, say, an engineering team and then people leave and then people come in and then techno debt has, say, built up over a period of time and nobody's dealt with it in the past. So they're kind of like, this isn't apparently something the culture cares about. And then I think it can definitely influence that stuff down the road. In terms of, I want to kind of maybe hit you with one last question in terms of, you know, as you're kind of mentioned, you're kind of a designer, painter, developer, uh, fiction writer. Um, with, in terms of software development, what book do you find yourself recommending the most often? I think High Output Management is a super, super good book. Honestly, I think the best books have nothing to do with the top. Like How to Win Friends and Influence People is the number one book I recommend to basically everybody. It's terribly titled. It sounds like sort of like, you know, how to pick up women at a bar. It's awesome. Yeah. I really like I've learned. Maybe that's just because I was like not a good person before I read that book or something. <laughs> There are things in there that I think are like profound in my view that have really helped me think about how I interact with other people in like a conscious way. And it seems fake maybe, but I think at the end of the day, like you do, you have to do something in a conscious way until it becomes unconscious. So for example, I never say no, or I try very hard not to say no. Saying no is like a very sort of antagonistic thing. And you know, in improv, there's this yes and approach to telling a story. And so I really like that idea. When an engineer, you know, you gave that example of an engineer that tried to get something done and wasn't able to. And typically the, a lot of the problem happens to be like, people just say no, like, sorry, that's not going to happen. We don't have time or whatever. And you, you hear that you give up. But if, if there's a way to sort of put it in a, in, in a positive light, like uh, we do want to do that. Like I actually do want to do this to do that. We're going to need to solve these three things first. And then we can go, that's going to allow us to do that in a really awesome way. Um, then you can like get them excited about those other three things instead of get them focused on the thing that they can't no longer. Right, right. That's, that's a good point. To answer that and also the last thing that you said, because I do want to talk about one thing that I really think has helped me is this idea that behavior and intention are not the same thing. You can learn about this from the book, I think, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think a lot of, a lot of what happens in a company over time is that people sort of only have behaviors to go on. They can only sort of judge people based on what they're doing. And a process, a good process, a good culture can sort of constantly surface intention because at the end of the day, like intention is what people want to do, what people wanted to do. And then behavior is typically what ended up happening, which is typically a subpar. It's like a shadow of the intention. And so I think the more that you can explain the why you're doing something and the why you're not doing something as a founder, as an employee, as an engineer, as an investor, the better off you're going to be because it, what it means is that everyone is going to understand why you did something, why you didn't do something instead of understand what you did. Yeah, that's interesting. So as we are wrapping things up here, do you have some, um, you know, you, you touch a little bit on potentially open sourcing Gumroad at some point. Do you have, are you, are you folks hiring right now? Yeah, we are. We are hiring. Not, I've honestly, we, I tweeted out once I was like, Hey, we're hiring remote Ruby JavaScript engineers. In December, I think. And I literally have not even recovered from that. It's like <laughs> 150 applicants. I think when you hire remote, when you allow people to work part time. So I've, I've literally just told people like, we are hiring, but like, unless you know somebody or you're insanely strong or you have a perspective the company doesn't have in terms of like underrepresentation, it's on, like just ping me in June. <laughs> well, great. So thanks again for speaking with us today, Sahil. Where can people find you online? 
Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter. That's probably the best place to sort of contact me. Uh, my Twitter handle is SHL. Nice and short, super easy. Yeah, that's the best place. You can DM me on there. You can, you know, send me an email. My email is just my first name at gumroad.com. Excellent. Thanks again for uh, joining us today. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh.